when the different brothers and sisters were speaking about faith, I thought about one of faith's counterparts, or rather, one of faith's counterfeits. And I guess to some extent or another, I have encountered this counterfeit of faith pretty much everywhere I've ever gone that represented a new field in the advance of the kingdom of God. And basically, the church world has learned to exist without God, learned to do just fine with man and without the presence or spirit or leading of God. And so it's really a new thing for Christians to contemplate. Many times it's a very new thing that God is still a living, powerful reality for the 21st century. There are different doctrines, the doctrine of cessationism that basically believes that when the perfect has come, we won't need the Holy Spirit anymore. And the perfect was the written word. You know, Augustine was the first one to peddle this nonsense. But he does say that when the perfect comes, there will be an end to knowledge and prophecy as well. So as long as people still have knowledge or prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus, then I just assume keep all the other gifts that are also still present here amongst us. But there is this, this adjustment that has to take place in the life and mind of a Christian that opens their heart to the reality of God's presence today. But the counterfeit comes in when after they have opened their minds and hearts to God's reality, something like this goes on in the minds of Christians. They say, well, I have been powerless. But thank God, he has sent his spirit, which is going to give us power. That is wonderful. And I have been bound, but thank God, he has sent his word, which you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I have been dry, but he has sent his grace and his water into my life. And I have been hopeless, but he has brought me joy and purpose and all these things are true, but some kind of counterfeit starts to creep into our minds when we say, God is so powerful and so wonderful, he's going to change me, and I can just be a bystander to the process. You say, I've never thought that. Maybe you haven't, but it's nonetheless pretty widespread. Maybe it's not articulated in quite those words, but... <clears throat> It says, I believe God is great now. And he, I didn't used to be able to do anything right apart from him. But now that the Spirit has come, I'm going to be changed. So I go to a meeting and I hear what the Spirit is doing. And the Spirit says he wants to change me. And I say, I agree. And I come back a week later and I'm not changed. And I kind of, what's going on, God? I thought this was what it was all about. You're going to be powerful. You're going to transform me. Does God have the power to change you? To transform you? Yes. But this mindset obscures the role that we're supposed to play in the process. Would you agree? Pretty soon we're going to be saying, 
God, could you please be the father to my children for me? Could you please obey for me? Could you please be a Christian for me? And we may pray diligently, God, please minister to my wife. Please, please minister to my wife. And we wake up the next morning and she doesn't seem very ministered to. We can even pray, God, please weed my garden. God, please mow my lawn. You're a good God. You can do all things. Please, Lord, be a friend to my friends. And the Lord is looking at us saying, what did I make you for? God wants to put at our disposal the necessary grace to do his will, but you still got to do it. We're not going to be excused from the job. In fact, that word was used of the people who missed out on the kingdom of God. In Luke 9, it says that Jesus began to declare the kingdom, but people kept coming and begging to be excused. Please, sir, consider me excused. God is not interested in doing your job for you. He is interested in transforming you to do the job that he called you to do. And that's what Helen is talking about and Sister Dara. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. First time the word grace is mentioned in the Bible. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And his sons came and said, Dad, I thought you were planning to build a boat. And he said, no, grace has come. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> come on now, that's how Christians think about grace, isn't it? No, that's not how grace works. The grace of God that brings salvation is an active agent in a believer's life. It is doing something. The Bible tells us in 2.15 of Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation is teaching us. And the word is paideo, discipling and training us to say no to ungodliness, to deny worldly pleasures and to live sensibly and godly in this present age. The grace of God is not an inert thing. It's not an exemption slip that we got where the Lord told us we didn't have to do his will anymore. The grace of God is an empowering thing. It's an active force, an agent in our lives. So Noah's son said, Dad, why? what has gotten a hold of you? What are you doing? He said, I found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and I got the energy to work for 120 years to do his will. Let's do it. God gives grace so that you can do his will. Even that much-loved scripture in Philippians 2, he says... We should work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. But as it says in the baptism pledge, we still got to get up and do it. God is working as he's speaking. God is working as he's prompting through his Holy Spirit. God is working as he's communicating through people, through nature, through the word. And the question is, can we respond to those promptings from God and get up and do his will?
I've seen people who wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they're very afraid that it not be them. And that's a legitimate fear, I guess, to a certain point. But they can get to this place where the Spirit is all around them. They're so overcome they can hardly speak. They're trembling inside and out. The presence of God is all over them. But there is this fear in us to participate. There is this aversion in irresponsible flesh to step up and participate in the works which God has prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And so I've told people that that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit represents. It really represents an incredible paradox of total surrender combined with total participation. You can say, God, please receive the Holy Spirit for me. He is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Doesn't need to receive it. <laughs> God, please worship for me. Please pray for me. No, <laughs> these are things that he gave us to do so that we could become partakers of his divine nature, Peter said. To us has been given exceedingly great and precious promises so that we might become partakers of his divine nature. He does not want us to sit by and stay the same. He wants us to become like him. And so when someone is, is, is seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they cannot have this attitude that says, okay, here I am. I'm hanging here like your limp and ready rag. I'm inert. I'm lifeless. Have your way. That's not what the Bible says. It says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that word is litzok. It means to cry out with ear-splitting cries. The prophet Isaiah says there is no one who will stir himself up to lay hold of the Lord. God is not going to do your seeking for you. He is not going to do your praying for you. He is not going to do your crying out for you. He is not going to speak in tongues for you. He is not going to love for you. He's not going to be a friend for you. He is going to empower you to do His will. And there are many Christians who are willing to pray, but who after they encounter grace are unwilling to pick up a board and a nail and start building the ark. And God does not give us His full plan in one moment. He does not reveal, us, reveal to us His perspective from omniscience. We have a finite view. We have a limited vantage point. That's why it involves faith. But we have to be like Peter where we say, Lord, if this is you, command me to start participating. And then we say, okay, God, I'm going to take one step out here. And if I feel your Holy Spirit, I'm going to take another one and another and another and another. And we begin to walk and live by the Spirit. Many Christians are willing to pray. And they say there's power in prayer. And there's, there's not power in prayer. There's power in fervent, effectual, heartfelt, humble prayer. There is not power in all prayer. 
We have to pray as the Lord has taught us to pray. So it says Jesus, who had all the fullness of God inside of him. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, it says that he prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save his soul from death, and he was heard for his reverent submission. If we want to be like Christ, then we got to learn to get a hold of God like he did. We can't say, I came to the meeting, I didn't feel anything. We got to come into a meeting and say, God, I'm not feeling anything. I've got to seek your face until I lay hold of the Lord tonight. We got to realize our responsibility in the relationship. We can pray until we even feel something. That's good. But then when we feel something, if we don't act on it, if we say, okay, God, I prayed for, for so-and-so, that's good. But you better be listening for God to say, now get up and go and speak and do and love and minister. He is not going to be a Christian in our stead. I have faith that God's going to do it. No, 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 no. That's not faith. No, that is not faith. God is not going to do it. God is going to help you do it. And you can say it's God. You can even say it's not you. Just so long as you make allowance for the fact that you're still doing it. Isn't that what Jesus was saying in Matthew 10? When you're drugged before rulers and governors, do not be afraid about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. <clears throat> in that very hour, the Spirit of my Father will give you what to say and how to say it. And then he says, it will not be you speaking, but my Father speaking through you what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. <laughs> so I'm fine with that kind of contradiction. <laughs> It's not me, but I'm still doing it. That's great. That's, how we, that's what we need. We need to be doing things that aren't us, that really are prompted and anointed and motivated by the Spirit, just so long as we're out there talking to that governor and saying, wow, this is God, but I'm still doing it. I'm not staying at home behind my locked door praying God will go for me. Thank you, Jesus. And why? Why do we want God to do it for us? Is it just honor and respect for how much better he is than us? Mm -mm. No. It's because to step out in obedience requires vulnerability. Amen. And we still have an image that we're needing to protect. We still have a self that we're needing to preserve. And the best way to die is to humble yourself through obedience. I shared that at the Bachelor Fellowship. A lot of times humility is confused with passivity. Amen. I've been in churches where they said that you couldn't confess that you had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues because that would be pride. What? Where did you get that? I've been in churches where you couldn't stand up and speak the anointed word of God because they said that would be pride. And what they think humility is, is passivity. Staying deferential with a soft voice and just being oh so sweet. The more you got of that, the more you are a Christian. But is that the biblical standard of Christianity? Is that the biblical standard of humility? I would challenge anybody who is more humble than Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. But humility is not passivity. Humility is obedience. 
Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient. And he gives grace to those who get off their seats and become obedient. That's real humility. No matter if it makes you look proud or it makes you look humble. What you look like doesn't really matter. Just whether you actually can become obedient, that's all that matters. So passivity is not the standard of humility. Nor is tone of voice the standard of humility. Was Jesus humble when he turned over their tables? Was Jesus humble when he braided a whip, cracking it, taking their money boxes and shaking the contents on the floor? Was he humble? Was he humble when he said, you whitewashed sepulcher? You're full of dead men's bones. Was he humble? Yes, he was humble because he also said, as I hear, I speak and I do nothing on my own initiative but only as the Father directs. He was speaking as the Holy Spirit prompted him and guided him and directed him. If he had been proud, he would have taken dominion, attempted to take dominion over that spirit, that voice, and he would have modified it and moderated it and polished it and made it much more compatible with the flesh of those around him. But he didn't have the liberty to do that. What kind of liberties do we afford ourselves? What is our responsibility? Is our responsibility to be sweet? Is our responsibility to make other people feel good? I ask myself from time to time, God, what is my responsibility? I want to bless people. I want to encourage people. I want to give them hope. I want to comfort people. I want to strengthen their faith. faith. And all of these things God is going to do. But he hasn't given me the liberty to do any of them on my own initiative. All he wants me of me is to learn that I'm not allowed to do or say anything without his prompting. We humble ourselves by becoming obedient. And every time the Spirit starts to move, He's wanting you to become obedient and to advance His dominion, His King, His kingship in the world that you live in. Amen. I don't have the liberty to set my own pace. I don't have permission to choose my own course. I don't have the mandate to make others feel good. I just have the requirement to stay in lockstep with the prompting and leading of your spirit. Oh, God, help me. Help me, Jesus, to humble myself by becoming obedient. So real pride is taking dominion over the things of God and doing them in our modified, moderated, polished-up version. Real humility is just being willing to go out not knowing where we're going. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith, 
and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. What I'm talking about is all the tangles that can trip you up. Even the good-looking tangles, even the religious tangles, even the sweet tangles, the deferential tangles. Why does a soldier choose not to entangle himself? So that he may please the one who enlisted him. You cannot please your enlisting officer if you are an entangled person. How many of you ever asked someone to come participate in some project? Let's say you're going to build a house or something and you ask somebody to come participate in that project. They say, I'm, count me in. I'm on board. Put me on your team. First night comes around. We need to do some clearing. <clears throat> I really want to do it, but there is something going on tonight and I just cannot break free. No problem. Goodbye. Hi, we're about to lay the foundation. Could you help, help us tie rebar? Oh, boy. Mm, I would, but I got this family engagement and not going to be able to do it. How many of you enlisting officers uh, have bit your tongue more than once? You cannot please the person who hired you if you're entangled. Because when opportunities for service present themselves, you're doing something else that's oh so important. I'm just trying to illustrate what Paul is trying to say. He said a soldier won't let himself get sucked in and entangled in normal life because he's got to be on call. He keeps his pack by the door, his weapons ready, his helmet on top. And all he needs is an alarm. And he's ready to march. If you are an entangled person, you cannot please Jesus, who is called the captain of your salvation. Because every time he calls you, you say, Lord, I'll be right there. Just please give me a minute. And the opportunity passes you by. We have to get to the place where we only have one priority. And that is to step out when he says go. And to stop when he says halt. To the right, to the left, up, down. It doesn't matter. If you get engrossed, no matter how good those things are, if you get engrossed in something, you're not going to be able to please your commander. You know what? God is going to do something, brothers and sisters. We are at a turning point. We are at a pivot point in the history of our fellowship, but at the, in the history of the world. We can feel it. We can feel it in the meetings, in the prayer. We can feel it in the Tuesday night prayer meetings. We can feel it when we hear that people are coming from China and Indonesia and Malaysia and India and all over the world 
every continent is represented, we can feel that something is afoot. And I want to warn you about the things that can entangle you. You don't have your priorities set. You don't have this obedience that is the real sign of humility. You don't have that. You're going to miss your time. It's going to walk right past you. God is going to start calling together people who are less qualified but more available. God doesn't call people half the time based on their ability but based on their availability. God wants to bring you into relationships that represent the lordship of Jesus in your life, that bring a more eternal focus and direction to your actions. And you better beware because you're not going to please your commander if you're entangled. I've had brothers write me letters and call me up and say, I have a feeling that if I don't quit this job, I am going to lose my relationship with God. I don't have the relationships I used to have. I don't have, I can't go to the meetings I used to go to. My prayer life is compromised. And if I don't make a change, I'm going to lose my relationship with God. As far as I know, without exception, I've told them, then you had better make that change no matter what it costs you. That is civilian life. But there is a heavenly purpose afoot. And you better not miss your chance to be part of it. Thank you, Jesus. Let the chips fall where they may. I want to do God's will. Amen. It can be sin that entangles us too. Remember what he said? Let us lay aside every sin and the weights that so easily entangle us. You see, with a weight, you can keep moving, but you move oh so much slower. He doesn't just say the sin, which is a weight. He says the sin and the weights. We know we've got to give up the sin, but do we know we've got to give up the weights? There's something about us. We just move too slow. God wants to take some weight off of us. It's like we got lead packs strapped to our legs. And every hill is a mountain. And every mountain is an Everest. And every task takes two, ten times as long as it should. He's trying to say, I want to make you nimble. I want to make you quick. I want to make you someone who can run in the paths of my command. What are those weights that beset us? They can be sin. They can be a weighed down conscience. To whom does he say it? Weighed down yeah, he says these, yeah, as he's speaking of women, he said these are those who are weighed down by sins and various lusts. When you can't overcome a sin, and it weighs on you. It slows you down. God wants us to jettison those sins. But he also wants us to cut just the good old civilian life entanglements. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. 
Entanglement doesn't stop at entanglement. Entanglement leads to overcoming, to being overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to depart from the sacred commandment. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. We're at a turning point, brothers and sisters, and it's time to take the lead weights off and to clip all the entanglements, free ourselves up to do God's will. You may have come into this meeting tonight with lead weights strapped to your legs. You may have come in with all kinds of strings and cobwebs as strong as steel wrapping all around you, but God wants you to leave here tonight freed. He wants you to leave tonight freed to do His will. You see, there is something in you that is a child of God, and there is something in you that is a child of Adam, and these two have to coexist but not as equal partners of your life. One is supposed to be so suppressed, so denied as to be dead. He is supposed to be six feet under, under the blood, under the baptismal covenant, under your pledge of a good conscience. And the other is supposed to be being renewed in the likeness of God, being transformed. So whenever you encounter an opportunity or even the word of God or any juncture or crossroads in your life, your flesh is going to have an opinion and your spiritual man is going to have an opinion. And if you give these equal voice, the flesh is going to take over. Because the flesh is something that you're experienced at, you're comfortable with. It's who you've lived with in the same body for your whole life. But the spirit is something brand new. You're not accustomed to him. He is not... He has not been in your apartment your whole life long. So you're going to have to work to suppress the opinions and the voice of the flesh and to give the spirit some air to breathe. Every time God does something, every time he speaks, every time he moves, your little spiritual man is like a plant and he just flaps his, his, his uh Leafs and branches, oh, I want this, I need this. Something in you rallies. That spiritual man, whoo, gets excited. But that big, cumbersome, bloated, fleshly man says, oh, be quiet. There's only enough room for me. And you've got to know there's something inside of you that is victorious. If you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, there's a new nature inside of you made in the likeness of God. Not in the likeness of sinful flesh, but in the likeness of God, Paul says. There's somebody inside of you that is victorious. He that is born of God cannot sin, for his spirit, his seed, dwells in him. When you blow it, that's not your spiritual nature. That's your carnal nature. The spiritual man inside of you is what's born of God. But the natural man is what's born of the flesh. If you could just keep your eyes on this and say, God, if I could keep my spiritual man in the forefront, I'd stop blowing it. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. But they that are in the spirit 
cannot please the flesh. <laughs> you really want to overcome? Get in the spirit. Give the spirit room. Become a spiritual man. There is something inside of you that is victorious. Old, behind, lapsed, failing, falling, pitiful, loser, you. There's something inside of you that is victorious. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. But how small or how big is that something? That's the big question. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Something inside of me goes, whoa, I know I've been born of God, so there's something in me that can overcome the world. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. You've just got an imbalance. Every time your spiritual man starts to take a leap forward, your carnal man grabs him by the ankles and he falls flat on his face. Kick back really hard and keep moving. Amen? You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. God is calling people, and he's already called some. But he's speaking to you tonight and saying, why are you still entangled? Do you remember when Deceiver took Christian and wrapped him in the net? Amen. His feet were barely bouncing on the ground. And, and who was that guy who came by with the sword? What was his name? Hmm? Was it Evangelist? I don't remember. We're going to call him Evangelist because nobody disputes that. But Evangelist comes by and he's like, what are you doing in here, Christian? Oh, it's terrible, you know. He's just all twisted and tied up in this net. Amen. We feel that, some, that way sometimes. And, and we hear the Lord from the net. <laughs> he says, I want you to do this, and I want you to do that, and I want you to become this. And, oh, God, how could I ever? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. God wants to put a sword through that net. He wants you to free yourself from your entanglements. He wants you to become available for his purpose. Nothing will wrap you up like pride. Nothing will tie you in knots like pride. God, would you please help me to put my pride to death? Don't pray that God would take your pride away. He doesn't take pride away. He gives you grace to be humble. Humility takes pride away. He, he, can't, do, he can't do humble for you. Humility is within your reach. Just start obeying God completely, completely. It's within every one of our reach to become humble, isn't it? How many tangles of the net are going to unravel if we just take that step? I feel like there are people, my dad once had a dream. And in the dream, he saw a man who had his arm 
all wrapped up in this contorted way. And in the dream, it seemed like a really big deal. The consequence was huge. The symptom was terrible. But in the dream, he got closer and he realized that all that was holding it was a thin little black strip of electric tape. And he said there was this impulse that electric tape can be clipped. Like the man with the withered arm. One word out of Jesus' mouth. And he wasn't entangled anymore, was he? He wasn't all knotted up in his impossibilities. He was free to be a son of God. And I feel like there are people in this room tonight. You've thought about your gifts. You've thought about moving forward in God so much that you're just in this knot. And God is trying to tell you, your tangles are no big deal if you'll just humble yourself and become obedient. One clip and that electric tape is gone. There's a lot of things that can entangle you. What does it say? An entanglement is a snare, isn't it? The fear of man brings an entanglement, doesn't it? But the fear of God is strong confidence. I'm going to do your will, God. Hallelujah. I can just see this whole army of netted, entangled Christians who hear the word from the net. Amen. And I can just hear the Lord saying tonight, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. Just put it aside. He's telling you, you can become unentangled, disentangled tonight. One act of faith, one act of obedience, one act of surrender, one big change in your life. And your commander's going to say, oh, you're back on the project, I see. God, don't pass me by when you're calling your team together. Don't find me so busy here and there, so distracted by much serving, that when you're calling your team together, I'm one step behind and I miss it. People get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no ticket. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. You don't need no ticket, no. Just thank the
leave behind your doubt. Oh, leave behind anything that is holding you. 